We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cass. Good morning. What can you say in six words? I mean, six words hardly even a decent grocery list. I mean, six words, maybe just carry that in your head. Don't even write it down. Yeah, there's this story about Ernest Hemingway writing a novel in six words, but the story is probably apocryphal. And anyway, a novel is fiction. Michelle Norris is a writer and journalist. She knows the limitations of six words. And more than that, she knows their power. For a decade and a half, she's been inviting people into that six-word space to share something, whatever they want to share, about race. It has grown into an amazing archive. And now it has become a book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. You know Michelle Norris's voice. She co-hosted NPR's All Things Considered for a decade. Before that, she was an ABC News correspondent. Her first book, a memoir of family secrets, she called The Grace of Silence. And she founded and directs The Race Card Project, which we're going to talk about. Michelle is here with me in the studio. Welcome back to On the Record, Michelle. Sheila, it's great to be with you. Good to see you again. Really good to see you. We've known each other a long time. A long time. (laughs) A long time. Our hidden conversations is stunning, both both the visual appearance and, and what is in the book. You say it's like a scrapbook mm-hmm. of your 14-year journey with the Race Card Project. What is the Race Card Project? The Race Card Project is an archive. It is a, a narrative archive filled with more than 500,000 stories that we officially archived and thousands more that are waiting for us to officially archive them. It's a, it's an archive full of stories that all begin with six words. It started 10 years ago when I started distributing postcards. We're on the radio so people can't see this, but I'm actually holding one of the original postcards in my hand. She is holding a postcard. And it, it says, race your thoughts. Six words. Please read. Please send. Please send. Please send. Yes. And it started with people sending their thoughts on the back of these postcards. And physical postcards. Physical postcards. With postage stamps. Which, which, which says something about intent. You had to find a postage stamp. You had to find a mailbox. And the cards that started to come back, you know, I did this because I didn't think people wanted to talk about race. So I wanted to invite them into the conversation. And this little exercise was a way to do that. And then when people took the bait and started to send their six-word stories in, and they were saying things like, I'm only Asian, when it's convenient, you said dirt, so I scrubbed. Boyfriend visited, Nana called the police. They were just interesting. Dad was racist, I'm not. Um, I wanted to share them with people. I created a website, and then at that point, people could submit their cards digitally, and most of the submissions now come in digitally. But that's where it started with postcards. And then it grew into this big teeming archive where people have entrusted us with their stories about race and identity, which is, you know, a beautiful thing, but also a surprise because I created this because I thought no one wanted to talk about race. So a, a mistaken premise uh-huh. <laughs> led to this this wonderful archive that um, has taught me so much. And I hope in writing this book will teach other people, you know, things that... Uh, about the lived experience about race that we don't really get a chance to understand or examine because these are closely held thoughts. People often are saying something, expressing something out loud for the first time. Why did you call it the race card? 
because present. I've always hated that phrase, someone playing the race card. It's usually said to you when the, someone is trying to say, please stop talking, you're making me uncomfortable. And so this was my pithy attempt to take that phrase and instead use it to stoke conversation instead of shut it down. At a certain point, in addition to those, I counted eight words on the postcard, mm-hmm. you, you gave yourself two more words yeah, than yeah. you gave your respondents. You added anything else? Yes. How did yes. that change things? So that was when we created the website, and the submissions started to come in digitally. And that just opened the door wide, because people would write their six words, and then they would explain. They would send in a backstory, sometimes just a sentence or two, sometimes a full paragraph, sometimes an entire essay. Over time, they began adorning their submissions with photos. Mm. They would send in maps and ephemera. That's where things you know, can really get interesting. And so in the book, I included, I write a dozen essays and an introduction and an epilogue. But in between my essays, there are rivers of six-word stories. And some of them are just six-word stories, and some of them are six-word stories that also have a backstory. And then many of them include a photo. There are 287 photos in the book. It drove my publisher a little crazy. You want to do what? You want how many photos in this book? Yeah. But I wanted the book to jump off the page, and I wanted people to see some of these individuals and see some of the things they're talking about. When the gentleman talks about, Daddy, why is the pool filled up? And you see what used to be a swimming pool. And then you see the story that he sent in in Lynchburg, Virginia, um, when the public accommodations uh, laws were upheld in a Supreme Court decision, they had to open the public pools to people of color. And in Lynchburg, Virginia, they said, oh, no, we're not doing that. So instead, they filled up the pools with dirt and rocks and covered them with sod. And today, you can still see the outline of that pool. And a little boy looks at that and says, Daddy, why does that Why does it look like that? And in your mind, when you actually can see that pool, it tells a story, you know, unto itself. And then next to that is a story, and we chose these stories. We curated them very carefully. Sheila, next to that on the page is, um, I think the six words were, he can't swim, dad saves him. And it's a story about someone whose father, um, they opened up their home to the football team. And everyone is swimming in the pool, and one of the black players, African-American players, drifts into the deep end of the pool, and Dad has to jump in and save him. And, and his son doesn't understand, why did none of, the, you know, none of the black kids know how to swim? And his dad had to explain, well, because they weren't allowed to swim at public pools. And these two, they're on the page next to each other, and I did that on purpose because I wanted people to see that in some cases, the stories that land in my inbox, these two people don't know each other. But they but connect. They're totally in conversation with each other. That's Michelle Norris, host of the Audible original podcast, Your Mama's Kitchen, a Washington Post opinion columnist and founder of the Race Card Project, for which she won a Peabody Award in 2013. We're talking about her new book based on those race cards, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. I, I want listeners to hear a few of the responses. Will my son get shot too? Nikai Mutagana, Freedom, Pennsylvania. Will my son come home tonight? Dorothy Ray, Midlothian, Virginia. My son just loves good food, but I worry when he says he is going out. I cannot sleep when he says, Mom, I'm going to dinner, to a movie, hang out with my friends. 
With his being away at school, he has been pulled over three times for no reason, held in the back of a police car, then released as the wrong person. I should be able to rest when night falls, knowing that my son will be safe, but I do not have this assurance. White police officers frighten me. Aaron Jones, Landover, Maryland. Hated for being a white cop. Brett Meisel, Nacogdoches, Texas. As a young, naive police officer, I mistakenly thought most people would appreciate my sincere desire to help and protect the citizens of my community. I was shocked to find out that some people, who didn't even know my name, background, or what was in my heart, hated the very sight of me only because I was a white police officer. What surprised you in this archive? Well, we should say that some of the voices you just heard, Brett, for instance, the police officer, that's not actually his voice. In many cases in the audiobook, people are reading their original stories. In a few cases, we couldn't get the the author to read the story, so we had a voice actor come in. So that was one of those. What surprised me is the candor. What surprised me is the number of people who were Caucasian who sent in their stories. I didn't expect that. Most conversations about race seem to center on on people of color and most specifically black people. These cards, these stories that you just played, represent what surprised me also is how intimate they were. So when someone is writing about something after a big event that's in the news, say the killing of, of Tamir Rice or right here in Baltimore, Freddie Gray, they don't necessarily mention Freddie Gray's name. When they go to their phone and type out their truth with their thumbs or they sit in the glow of their computer screen, they talk about something more intimate. They talk about their son, as you just heard. The woman's, you know, talking about her son. Sends in a beautiful picture of her son in a restaurant, you know, eating what looks like delicious food. She worries about him every time he goes out the door. They write about their job, as you heard um, when Brett Maisel talks about hated for being a white cop. I've actually interviewed him. And, you know, and he says that he joined the force because he wanted to do good things. He wanted to protect and to serve. And he realizes that everywhere he has gone as a police officer, he hits a wall of um, mistrust at best, but usually outright scorn and hatred because he's, he's wearing, he's a white man in a blue uniform. And he's gone back to work at the sheriff's department at some point because he's got a son and a nephew who are also in law enforcement. And he's really worried about this this chasm, about this this lack of trust. And he wanted to try to do what he could in the department to try to create some sort of, you know, bridge between the communities. But he, he was honest. You know, he said, when everyone hates you because they think you're a jerk, you know, sometimes you start to become that jerk. Yeah. You know, sometimes you you harden up a little bit. You You lose some of the softer edges. And as a journalist, you know it's hard to actually talk to police officers. You know, they usually can't talk because of the FOP, because of all kinds of restrictions. In this case, one of the things that surprised me is the number of police officers who sent me their stories and, and said, you know, we actually do want to talk about this. There's just not an on-ramp for us. More than a half million responses and more than half of those from white people? In m- most of the years, in the majority of the years that we have done this, the majority of the cards have come from, from white Americans. So, yeah, more than half of the cards from white Americans. And, and that that truly was astonishing to me because that was not what I expected. Anytime I have been involved in any kind of vertical, any kind of conversation, any kind of exercise around race, it's usually centered on black people. You know, when we talk about race in America, there is this 
let's turn to the people of color and see what they have to say about it. In fact, it. let's make them run the conversation. Yes, exactly. You, you, let, you can take ownership of this. That's not what happened here. And it tells me that there are a lot of people who feel maybe left out of the conversation. It also tells me that we haven't provided a space in all cases. I mean, we work in the media, so you know how this goes. When something happens, um, we invite certain people to come into the studio to, you know, quote in our newspaper articles. They're almost always people of color if there's a racial element to the story. Mm-hmm. They're almost always people of color. And maybe we And it need would seem disrespectful, almost, not to prioritize those voices. Yes, yes, but yes and. You know, maybe we need to have more voices in that story. And the example I use is, you remember what happened in Buffalo, New York, when there was someone who drove a great distance, I think across a couple of different states, went to a grocery store in an African-American neighborhood and shot several people away while they were just mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. buying groceries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there were days of coverage after that. And and most of the people that we turned to, we, the media, turned to, were people of color. This was a white man who had done this. And it would have been an interesting moment to examine the roots of hatred. Not just the victims of hatred, Mm -hmm. but the roots of hatred. And if we're going to examine the roots of hatred, then that needs to be a wider conversation. And so... That's some of the lessons that I've taken from this, is when I think about how to have conversations about race, when I think about how to examine these issues, I, I just have a, a slightly broader perspective now. And I assume now that we all have blind spots. And some of them are, some of them are on purpose, frankly, but some of them are just cultural. We just kind of go with what has always happened. And this project has, has really helped me understand that sometimes people need to be invited into the space and that it's not always going to be easy when they do. There's going to be some discomfort, but that we need to have, in a country that seems to be focused on building walls, I, I believe Jose Andres when he says we need longer tables. You know, we need more chairs at that table so, so more people can pull up a seat. Quick break now on the record. We're talking with Michelle Norris, journalist, author, and founder of The Race Card Project, about her new book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. When we're back in a minute, a secret birth certificate, a flood of changes. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. On the night before her 50th birthday, Arlene Lee of Chestertown on Maryland's eastern shore was rifling through some papers of her mother, an immigrant from Peru who had died not long before. Oddly, she found two Peruvian birth certificates for her mother. On one, the child is described as Negro. On the other, she's not. Soon, her daughter Arlene Lee would send six words to the race card project birthday present. You're black, sorta. Lee's story 
and how her thinking would evolve over more than a decade is laid out in Michelle Norris's new book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. Michelle, how did finding those two birth certificates change Arlene's life? Well, it was a surprise to her because Arlene, and I've talked to Arlene now over more than a decade, Arlene was raised by a woman who was white Hispanic. And she married a man who was white. And so Arlene grew up thinking she was white. End of paragraph, full stop. And it turns out when she finds these birth certificates that her mother had told her things that weren't true. Her mother had said that her father was absent, that he wasn't really in the picture. He actually was in the picture. Her mother grew up with him in Peru in a city called Iquitos in the jungles of Peru at the point where the Amazon is at its widest. And they grew up in the hills, very poor, and her father was a black man. This is her grandfather. This is Arlene's grandfather. This would be Arlene's. Her mother is named Dora. Dora's father was a black man in Peru, part of the group of black men that were brought to Peru to work harvesting rubber. And he stayed, and he raised Arlene's mother. When Arlene's mother came to America, it was a time where being black meant that you couldn't go certain places. You couldn't live certain places. So it was just easier for her to shave. She was, you know, young enough that she could shave a few years off her age and she could present herself as someone who was younger and present herself as someone who was white and Peruvian and just leave that, you know, that word Negro that was on her birth certificate, leave that behind. So when Arlene discovers this, um, it's it's a point of fascination. It's a source of vertigo because why did her mom keep this from her? She you know, didn't have a chance to talk to her about it. But then there are all kinds of questions. Okay, well, what does this mean? What does this mean in terms of the box that I check? What does it mean in terms of my affinity? What does it mean in terms of the way that I look at some of the things that I took for granted in life? And it's interesting because she makes this discovery when Shortly after Barack Obama is elected, takes office, black family is living in the White House and she discovers she's black. It's a moment of sort of celebration for black America. This goes on and then she is making these continual discoveries about, you know, her identity and trying to learn more about her grandfather. And then Donald Trump is elected and there are more racial fissures in America. And so the kinds of conversations that she's having at her dinner table, that she's having in the workplace are a little bit different. And throughout all this, she's trying to figure out, do I enter this space as a woman of color now? Do I raise my hand when there's an affinity group, you know, for African-Americans at work? Do I show up? Because everyone for all these years has thought I was just the white woman over here. And it turns out that I, I have a place at that table. Do I claim it? And she is found in this project and through these conversations, I think, a place, an outlet to talk about some of these things. And it's just been really interesting to watch her on this journey, and as she has become more committed to using her voice to try to create spaces for people to talk about these kinds of things in the workplace, and she feels more, I think, of an investment, that's what she would say, because, again, she doesn't feel like a bystander. She feels like, oh, this is part of my heritage. What it has made her want to do now is go back and learn more about people of color who've lived in Peru and learn more about you know, filling in the blank spaces on her history. Her story is not unique. America is full of people who came here and in some ways 
shaved some piece of themselves off in the quest to become more American. That's not unusual. They don't always change their birth certificates. Let's be clear about that. But sometimes people lose certain aspects of their culture in order to assimilate or to become more American. And what's interesting is when I talk about these kinds of stories in one space, then you wind up hearing from someone else who's from, you know, my parents were from Lithuania. And they didn't want us to speak the language. We only got to eat the food at home. You know, we we wanted to make sure that we were American. You hear that from people who are from Italy. You hear that from people who are Singaporean. You hear that from people who come from Indonesia. You know, in America, this big melting pot, sometimes in order to get to gain acceptance, they lose something. This is On the Record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Kast, speaking with journalist, former NPR co-host, and founder of the Race Card Project, Michelle Norris. Her new book is Our Hidden Conversations. About a third of the way through the book, you write a short, relatively short chapter that moves from the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II to a realtor who now regrets how she boosted white flight in the 1970s to an Irish-American who didn't understand until he was grown up the pressure on his family when he was a kid not to rent to a Puerto Rican family. It's like a microcosm of a whole lot of this book. This one chapter you call Coins in the Couch. Mm -hmm. What is the message? Well, I call it Coins in the Couch because there are these little bits of history that that wind up in, in our archive. And as a journalist and as a researcher, I I just get lost in the rabbit hole of researching these things. So, you know, someone writes in about a parent who, and several people have written in about parents who were in so-called, um, so-called internment camps. Uh, I say so-called because there's now a move against calling them internment camps because people were incarcerated; they were sent there against their will. And so I learned, you know, a lot about what happened to Japanese families who were hauled away. Um, and I call this coins on the couch because those little bits of history sort of get lost, like that, you know, that, that dime you find on the couch or that quarter you find on the couch. And it's opportunities not just for me to learn, but for for readers, you know, to learn about the um, gentleman you mentioned, his family rented to a Puerto Rican family. They lost all their friends. I mean, the the, the whole neighborhood turned against them. And we kind of take that kind of thing, the integration in our neighborhoods for granted, but we forget that the color line was sharp in a lot of places. And um, and he learned a thing or two about his parents when they decided to, you know, dig their heels in and stand up for the family, you know, to whom they rented to. And, um, and he is a lawyer who works outside Boston right now, and he carries that lesson with him in the kind of work that he does today. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry, we have to wrap this up soon. What what did you mean when you wrote racism is a shape shifter? It's not the same thing today as it was yesterday. When we think about conversations about race and racism, we maybe think about something in our mind. The, the um, Jim Crow demonstrations, people turning hoses and dogs on young students in Birmingham, Alabama, Race and racism sometimes present in different ways. So it's not always overt. Sometimes it's just something as simple as she is just not the right fit. A resume goes in one in the inbox or, or the outbox, and, and it presents in different ways over time. We're entering an age of AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Machines learn from us. So, for instance, they're going to learn our habits and our attitudes, and machines often improve on those things. So they are going to absorb our biases, 
And this will be an example of bias presenting itself in a different form. So are we stuck with racism? I, I think, you know, if you if you look at humankind, people have been figuring out how to divide themselves since the beginning of time. And we call it racism here in America. I get cards from, I receive cards from more than 100 countries. They often don't use the word race. You know, they talk about tribalism. They talk about other kinds of divisions. People who live in the mountains versus people who live in the valley. Religion is often a big divider. So people can figure out how to divide themselves. I think that probably is always with us. But I think that you can hijack the, the amygdala. I mean, I think that we can, you know, we can, we, you, can, you can stop that process. You can be that one person, right, who figures out how to find connections instead of divisions. Despite our proclivity to divide ourselves, we also can figure out how to work together productively. And it's usually because one person or a small group of people have figured out that it's better to work together than to fight against each other. So much here to to unpack. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Sheila. Michelle Norris created and directs the Race Card Project, for which she and her team won a Peabody Award in 2013. She writes opinion pieces for the Washington Post and hosts the Audible original podcast, Your Mama's Kitchen. From 2002 to 2012, she co-hosted NPR's All Things Considered. We've got more information about the Race Card Project and her new book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity at the other record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow.